down there as well. Right, as Richard said, we are in our series, A House for My Name. The story so far, we had a break last week, but what we've been in so far is what we call the Book of Beginnings. We've seen how the Lord has built a three-story house, the story is told in the book of Genesis, which then repeats in different ways throughout the Bible. The whole earth, waters, land, sky, represent a three-story house in which God wants to dwell with his people, and that human beings being made in the image of God as junior architects to work in the house that God is building, but the human race turned against God. We looked at the story of Babel where the nations try to build a tower to the heavens to kind of uh, attain the place of God and God scatters them but then later God comes down at another place called Bethel where he meets a man called Jacob and rather than scattering he brings together and says that Jacob is going to be blessed and through Jacob his house will be built. The next five weeks including today which takes us scarily right up to Christmas The next chapter of our story is called, Out of Egypt, I Have Called My Son. And this is the story of the Exodus. Now, when we talk about the Exodus, we think about the story of God rescuing the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And we'll be looking at that story this morning. But actually, there's a whole series of Exoduses, or I don't know if that's meant to be Exodi. I'm not quite sure of the appropriate... um, term there, but a whole series of exoduses told in the Bible in the lives of individuals, and we're going to be looking at some of those, stories of what looks like it's dead being made alive, people who are far from God's blessing coming into the blessing of God, and this is our story as well, that we share in this exodus story of people who were far from God being brought close to God, of people who didn't know God's blessing stepping into God's blessing. So, where we left the story last time, where Richard left it two weeks ago, God has come down at Bethel, he's going to build a house through Jacob, but then the story takes a twist. Jacob and his sons end up in Egypt. They're led in by Joseph, who has become Pharaoh's right-hand man, and then in the end, they're going to be led out of Egypt by Moses, who is Pharaoh's son. And you probably know that story, even if this is your first time in church, you probably know that story because you did Joseph in his Technicolor Dreamcoat as a school production, and you've watched the Disney film about Moses, so you know that story. But we need to take a bit of a wider angle view of that story, and I actually want to start with one of those odd Old Testament stories. If you read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, there are any number of places where you come across stories which just seem a bit... Odds And uh, Peter Lightheart, whose book, A House for My Name, we are based in this series on, says this, what is this story doing in the Bible? What is this supposed to teach us? And as you read your Bible, you might ask yourself that question many times. What is this story doing in the Bible? What is this supposed to teach us? And part of the aim of this series is to help us to answer that question. Um, this past week, Monday, Tuesday, the Americans who'd been with us last weekend, they were all flying back to the States on Wednesday. So Monday, Tuesday, I took them across to Normandy to see the D-Day beaches and all that kind of stuff, which is always pretty overwhelming for people. And uh, uh, we wanted to go and see the Bayer Tapestry, but we couldn't actually get in because it was closed. But none of them knew what the Bayer Tapestry was. Bayer what? Tapestry who? William what? And we can feel like that when we're reading the Bible. Who? What? Why? And... Uh, This is one of those stories. Now, this story is that Jacob has been 
in exile. He's run away from his family, from his home. He's ended up with his, this man who becomes his father-in-law, Laban. And to be honest, Laban is the father-in-law from hell. He is manipulative and controlling and just a difficult guy to live with and be with. And then eventually Jacob has had enough of the manipulative, controlling behavior of his father-in-law, and he packs up his wives and his children and his livestock, and he runs from Laban to return home. When Jacob ran away from home, he'd gone alone and he'd gone poor, now he runs away from Laban to go back home, and he returns rich and with a multitude of family and livestock and possessions. And Laban hears that Jacob has run away, and Laban sets out in pursuit and eventually catches up with him, and Laban has a list of complaints for Jacob. Why did you just steal off like that? Why didn't you let me say goodbye to my children and my grandchildren? Basically, though, Laban's underlying point is, why didn't you do things my way? Why didn't you stick with my agenda? And the particular complaint that Laban has is this, why did you steal my household gods? Now Laban, like Jacob, is a worshipper of Yahweh, a worshipper of the Lord, but Laban is also compromised. He's holding on to the old ways. He's got his old idols, superstitions, lucky charms, family traditions, and he's got these household gods who form some part of his worship, some literal idols. And you know, it's easy for us when we come to Christ to actually act in something of a similar way, that we come to Christ, put our trust in him, become worshippers of the true God, but we can, in a sense, carry our household gods with us. So those superstitions or family traditions even, or kind of lucky charms or things that we hold on to, which we want to keep. We want to worship Jesus, we want to worship the Lord. We want to kind of keep hold of these things as well as a kind of a fingers crossed, lucky charm. And that was how Laban was living and Rachel has inherited her father's compromised ways because Rachel, Jacob's wife, Laban's daughter, has stolen the household gods. Jacob knows nothing about this. And so when Laban says, why have you stolen my gods? Jacob hotly denies it. And this is what it says in Genesis 31, verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants but he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry, my lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched but could not find the household gods. What is this story doing in the Bible? What's it supposed to teach us? Why do we know that, need to know that Rachel was having her periods? Maybe she wasn't. Maybe she's actually lying. Who knows? Now, why do we need to know this story? Two reasons. First one is that it shows that Laban's gods are no gods. Because what kind of god can you sit on? And this is an illustration of the way that we can rely on things which actually are powerless. If you're going to have a God, you don't want a God that you can sit on. What kind of a God is that? And, and yet, many people go through life with that kind of God. The things we put our trust in, the things we put our hope in, the things we rely on. But they're basically things you can shove in a 
saddlebag and sit on. What kind of God is that? Second thing this story shows us is that Laban's gods are being defiled. They're being made unclean. The context of the ancient world, if a father came into a room, his daughter stood as a mark of respect. I think this is a tradition which should be <laughs> revised. An excellent idea. But that's how it was, and Rachel doesn't stand. And, and things which were touched by blood were considered to be unclean. So Rachel stays sitting when she should have stood, and she says she's having a period. So she's sitting on these gods, and they are being made unclean. And this is a sign that those who worship these gods are also unclean. That the way actually to life, to purity, is by worship of the living God, not by putting your trust in something which actually in the end defiles you. Uh, Peter Lighthart says this, This is not the only story in the Bible that shows us that idols have no power. In the book of Exodus, God attacks some of the main gods of Egypt with the plagues. Egyptians worship the Nile, but the Lord turns the Nile to blood. Egyptians worship frogs, so God gives them lots and lots of frogs. Egyptians worship Pharaoh, so the Lord kills Pharaoh and his firstborn son. When he judges Pharaoh, Yahweh also executes judgments against the gods of Egypt, and his mighty acts lead Israel to sing, Who is like thee amongst gods? This strange story causes us to ask the question, what are we worshipping? Where are we putting our confidence? The gods are nothing and will be judged. It's interesting, as you look at our world at the moment, it, it seems that so many people are so angry. There is such a temperature of anger in our society, particularly as it's channeled and focused through social media. Why is it that so many people are so angry? I think part of the reason is that people have put their trust in gods which are being seen to fail. Put your trust in technology and technology comes back to bite you. You put your trust in, uh, in seeking the perfect relationship and how often that doesn't work out. You put your trust in sexual fulfillment and it becomes a hollow process which actually becomes something which is itself controlling and abusive. You put your trust in money and the economy totters. You put your trust in the healthcare system and a pandemic still strikes and people are angry because they've trusted in gods which have proved false. Gods you can sit on. Gods which are defiled. By contrast, God's people know what it is to experience exodus. Jacob goes out of the land poor. He comes back rich. But there's another exodus story in Jacob's life. Jacob runs away from his home because he has a feud with his brother Esau. Later on, Jacob's son Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers because of a feud with them. It's one of the repeating cycles in this story. Now, we know this story, and most of us will know the rounding conclusion, the resounding conclusion of the story in Genesis 50, where Joseph's brothers come to him afraid, what's Joseph going to do to us? And Joseph says in that great statement of, of faith, God meant it for good. You sold me into slavery, you betrayed me, but God meant it for good. What you meant for my disaster has actually become the salvation of us all, because Joseph, sold as a slave, ends up as prime minister in Egypt. There's a famine in the land, and so Jacob and his sons are going hungry. Jacob, who had gone in poverty, come back in riches, now 
going hungry with his sons. And so the sons go to Egypt to look for food. But because Joseph is there, that changes from something which at first pass looks like a shopping trip to something which becomes an entire family relocation. Genesis 45, when the news reached Pharaoh's palace that Joseph's brothers had come, Pharaoh and all his officials were pleased. Pharaoh said to Joseph, tell your brothers, do this, load your animals and return to the land of Canaan and bring your father and your families back to me. I will give you the best of the land and you can enjoy the fat of the land. There's this recurring theme again and again in this story of poverty being turned into plenty, of scarcity being changed into enjoying the fat of the land, of exile being turned into exodus, of God's blessing on his people, out of hunger into plenty, out of lack into supply. But of course, the story then takes another twist, because Egypt, which has become the place of rescue for Jacob and his family, eventually becomes not a place of rescue, but a prison. It's just like the story of Jacob going to Laban again. Jacob runs from his brother Esau. He goes to Laban. He finds work. He finds a wife. And yet it also becomes a prison from which he eventually has to escape. The same thing happens for his descendants in Egypt. They go for a place of rescue, and that place of rescue in the end becomes a prison. Over 200 years, the status of the Israelites changes from honored guest in the land to slave Labor, And so we get to the book of Exodus, and this is how the story of the Exodus begins. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all, and Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The story tells us that 70 went down to Egypt, and that's a significant number. You know, there are numbers in the Bible which are significant. Number three, number seven, number 40, number 70. Significant numbers which have meaning behind them. And in Genesis chapter 10, we're told about 70 nations which occupy the earth. Those are the 70 nations which attempt to build the tower at Babel, and God comes down and he scatters those 70 nations across the face of the earth. Here we're told that 70 of Jacob's family go into Egypt. There's, we're being, it's not just a record of how many there were. We're being told something of theological significance here. That these 70, these 70 descendants of Jacob are replacing the 70 nations who rebelled against God. That God is going to build his house through the descendants of Jacob. 
And we see that in the way that the Israelites prosper and multiply in Egypt. Even when they are oppressed, they continue to grow. And this is the story of God's people. There have been many attempts through the ages to extinguish the people of God, but the people of God keep on multiplying. And as a lesson for us here at this moment in our history, that at this point in our history in the Western secular world, it can feel like Christianity is on the back foot. It can feel like Christianity is increasingly irrelevant and that numerically Christians are smaller and smaller in number. But don't worry, because the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. God is building his house. The people of God will never be extinguished. And there are times when, yes, it does look like the people of God are on the back foot. It looked like that at this time in Egypt. But God is still at work. God will still cause his house to be built. He'll still cause his people to multiply and to prosper. And at this point in the story of the people of Israel, God, of course, sends a rescuer. God sends to them the hero Moses. But before Moses himself becomes a rescuer, he himself must be rescued. And Moses goes through his own personal experience of exile and exodus. When Moses is born, this is a time when Pharaoh has issued a decree that any baby boy born to the Israelites must be thrown into the Nile and drowned. And it's a familiar story, but just kind of pause and think on it for a moment. The story of throwing the baby boys into the Nile to drown them. It is the, the desperation of a tyrant. Pharaoh, strong. Actually, incredibly weak. If what you're reduced to is killing babies, that's not a sign of strength. It's a sign of weakness. And there are some things we might think about in our own society about that at this time as well. Now, of course, Moses isn't drowned in the Nile. Moses is saved because his mother, Jochebed, hatches a cunning plan. She puts him in a basket lined with pitch, and rather than drowning him in the Nile, she floats him in the Nile. And there's something else which we're meant to see here illustrated in this picture. In, in the Hebrew, the word for basket and the word for ark is the same word. And the only two places in the Bible that that particular word is used is when it refers to the ark that Noah built and the basket in which Jochebed placed Moses. Noah built this vast wooden ark and he lined it with pitch so it would be waterproof. Jochebed takes a small woven basket and she lines that with pitch so it will be waterproof and it will float on the Nile. What's going on there? Well, what's going on is that Moses is a new Noah. Who was Noah? He was the man through whom God saved the human race. When things looked at their worst past, when judgment came upon the world, God saved the human race through Noah in the ark, the people, the family, the animals who traveled with him. And God is now doing the same thing through Moses. Moses is being saved. Moses and Noah both passed through the waters. As the rest of the world is drowned, they are saved and they become saviors and enter into a new world. Moses steps out of the ark, and the world is made new, and God gives him the sign of the covenant, the rainbow, and a promise of blessing. Moses passes through the waters and doesn't drown, but is picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, taken into the palace, becomes a prince. It's an exodus story. Moses becomes Pharaoh's son, but he doesn't forget who he is. 
doesn't forget that he's actually a Hebrew, an Israelite, and that his mission is to rescue his people. The story isn't just about him being rescued. The story is about his people being rescued and his job to lead them. And so we get to Exodus chapter 2, and it says this, One day, after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, again, in the, uh, the ways our, our Bible translates from the Hebrew into English uses different terms, but actually, apparently in the original Hebrew text, the words used for the Egyptian beating, striking the Hebrew, and the word for Moses killing the Egyptian, it's the same word. The Egyptian was striking this Israelite man, and Moses struck him. And something we need to note is that this is not an act of murder. We might read this story and think, what is going on here? It's Moses a murderer. Nowhere in the Bible is this act described as a murderer. It's described as an act of deliverance. That Actually, this was a, a righteous killing. And it can be a little bit hard for us to get our heads around that in our kind of world. But Moses was actually entitled to and right to act in deliverance, to strike this Egyptian oppressor, a sign of what the Lord would do to the whole of Egypt. And so Moses seeks to rescue his people, but tragically, the Israelites are not yet ready to be rescued. They're in slavery, they're being oppressed, they're being brutally treated, they've had their babies drowned in the Nile, but they're still not yet in the place where they're ready to be rescued. And it's amazing how that can happen. I'm sure we've all got examples. Maybe this has been true in your own life. I'm sure pretty much all of us can think of people in this kind of position where people desperately need help to get out of the trouble they're in. But sometimes they're just not ready. And if you try and help them, it can actually become counterproductive. You can try and strike a blow for deliverance and actually nothing you just gets flung back in your face. And that's what happens to Moses at this time. The next day, he goes out and he sees two of the Israelites fighting, and he tries to intervene, and basically they tell him to go to hell. Who do you think you are? You're not going to lead us. And so Moses flees Egypt, and he spends 40 years in exile in Midian. And the salvation of the people of Israel is delayed for a whole generation because they do not accept Moses. Moses spends 40 years in Midian, and the people in turn, we'll spend 40 years in the wilderness. There'll be another generation which passes before they finally come into their freedom, into the promised land. It's this repeating story. And whatever happens to Moses happens to Israel. This is what Peter Lightheart says. Moses is the head of Israel. And whatever happens to the head will happen to the body. Already with the head, Moses, the fortunes of Israel are changing. The Nile has been a burial ground for Israelite boys, but now it is the water of salvation for Moses. When Moses comes back to Egypt and begins to confront Pharaoh, the reversal continues. The Nile has been filled with the blood of Israelite boys, and now it is turned to blood. Pharaoh has been getting rid of the male Israelite boys, but in the end, all the firstborn sons of Egypt are killed. Israelite boys have been drowning in the Nile, but now Pharaoh and his host will sink in the sea like stones." The justice of the plagues is plain, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Yahweh delivers Israel with a powerful arm, but the Lord's arm is as just as it is strong. 
The Lord will work in justice. He will rescue his people. He will not let the oppressor have the final word. He will bring his people out. That's the story of the Exodus. Now, what does all this mean for us? What's the application for us? Now, if nothing else, seeing all these repeating patterns is fun, seeing how the story that what happened to Jacob and what happens to Moses and how it all intertwines and how the story is repeated and how it links. It's interesting to see. And, and part of the aim of this series is, is that hopefully as you're reading your Bible, that more often now you'll kind of have those moments of, aha, okay, I see that. That connects to this. I see the three-story house pattern repeated. I see the story of Exodus repeated. I see the story of exile and return and poverty to riches. I see it repeating. And there'll be more of those aha moments for us as we're reading the Bible to be able to connect the story together. But of course, what we're doing here is, is much more than just an academic exercise. This isn't a college course to help you to simply understand ancient literature in a better way. This is important for us because our story as well is a story of Exodus. We turn to God in Christ and we are brought out in order to be brought in. We turn to God in Christ and we're brought out of slavery to be brought in to freedom. Francis getting baptized in a few minutes down at 502, the story he told about his journey, his life. That's an Exodus story. It's what we speak about every time we baptize somebody. What's happening at baptism? Well, it's what happened to Noah. What happens at baptism? Well, it's the same as what happened to Moses. What happens at baptism? Well, it's the same as what happened to the Israelites. Noah passing through the flood. Moses passes through the Nile. The people passing through the sea. Us passing through the waters of baptism. What's that about? It's about being brought out to be brought in, being brought out of slavery to be brought into freedom, being brought out of death to be brought into life, being brought out of poverty to be brought into riches, being brought out of alienation from God into relationship with God. That's what's going on. Get caught up in this bigger story. Moses was the head of Israel. Whatever happened to Moses happened then in the story of the people of Israel. Well, Jesus is the greater, the truer, the better Moses, and Jesus is our head. And just as what happened to Moses happened to the Israelites, so what happened to Jesus happens to us. We share in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died. Jesus was exiled in order to go through an exodus to come back into life. And Jesus shares that with us. When we come to Christ, we die in Christ to our old way of life. We die to our slavery and our captivity. And we are raised to new life for resurrection, for freedom, for riches. Again, that's what's happening in the moment of baptism. It's a sign of that. It's a sign of sharing in all that Christ is and Christ has done. Repeating the story of what happened to Christ. We die with Christ and we're raised with Christ. These stories tell us who we are. Who are we? It's not just that we're people who happen to have been born when we did and live where we do and just happen to be British or wherever we come from. And No, if you've turned to Christ, you're part of this bigger story. Who are you? What are you? Well, you're an heir, participant with Noah and with Jacob and Joseph and Moses, with Jesus. Who do you belong to? You belong to God and his people. Where do you live? Bournemouth, Paul? Yeah, but you live in the house of God. 
the three-story house that God is building. That's your home. These stories also help prepare us for the other experiences of exile and exodus we might experience in our, in our lives. When we turn to the New Testament, we get to the book of Acts and the account of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr, the first person to be killed for his faith in Christ. And before he is stoned to death, Stephen, it's a long section in, in Acts chapter 7, Stephen recounts this story of God's working in the people of Israel. And most of his speech is about what happened with Moses and Moses' leadership, and he, he, he speaks about how the Israelites rejected Moses, and he ties that exactly to the way in which the people of his day had rejected Jesus. He said, this is how your ancestors treated Moses, this is how you have treated Jesus. You need to respond to Jesus as our ancestors should have responded to Moses. But they don't respond, and so they kill Stephen, and as a result, the church, the that first group of believers in Jesus are scattered, exiled out of Jerusalem. But where does that lead to? Well, that leads to is Acts chapter 8. It leads to the story that Donnie was telling us last Sunday. It leads to the story of Philip finding the Ethiopian in his chariot in the desert and speaking to him the good news about Jesus Christ. And that Ethiopian going back to Ethiopia and speaking the good news of Jesus Christ there. It's the beginning of the gospel going to all nations. What happens when Stephen is killed, it looks like the church has gone into exile. But actually, no, exile has been turned into exodus. Scarcity becomes plenty. Captivity becomes rescue. Rather than the gospel just being known by a few people in Jerusalem, suddenly the gospel is being preached throughout the world. That's what happens. No matter how much they were oppressed, they continued to multiply. You see, God always brings his people through. In our day, it can feel like there's a king who knows not Joseph. But in our world, the authorities, the powers, the, the wielders of, of fame and fortune and arbiters of taste and all the rest, it feels like they know not Joseph, they know not Jesus. But God is the true king and the mighty savior, and he will build his house. His house will not fall. His people will multiply and prosper. Because the story of the Exodus is that we are taken from poverty to riches, from lack to plenty, from captivity to freedom, from prison to paradise from being far from God to being called his sons and daughters, members of his household. That's the story of Exodus. That's the story for you and me. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this mighty story of rescue, repeated through the ages and now worked out in us. And I pray for us, Lord, I pray for us right here, right now, in our point in history, at the place where you've put us to live. I pray that we will remember who we are, the story which is ours, the house in which we belong. And Lord, whatever uh, pressures and difficulties we might see around us, whatever experience of exile we might feel we're in, we would know that we are Exodus people, that you are carrying us into your blessings. You will build your house. The church will prevail. And you will make yourself known. Thank you that you're the one who rescues us, saves us, and empowers us. And I pray that we would know that, King Jesus. Lord, I pray for anybody here this morning who feels in that place of, of captivity. Lord God, anybody who feels trapped at the moment, anybody who does feel far off, exiled, I pray that even now you administer in your grace to them and you draw them to yourself and allow them to experience freedom 
mercy, kindness in you. In your name I ask it, Jesus. Amen.